You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Aside from the two of us, we are joined by someone else, a familiar voice, which is Richard. Richard, the connoisseur of all things horror and a dearly beloved friend of the show. Welcome back. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We actually also have made a little adjustment when it comes to our Studying Pixels Plus program because we always do a little Patreon call out at the beginning of the show. And in between the episodes, we debated whether we should maybe introduce a little bit more of a low entry tier to Studying Pixels Plus. Because at the up until now, it was always like $5 a month to get all of our episodes ad-free, to get a sticker, and to get these monthly plus episodes that we do. Now, we added two more tiers in addition to that. We added a lower entry tier for $3 a month. So it's a little bit easier for people to subscribe to Studying Pixels Plus. So if you wish to, then it's a good time to do so right now. The only thing that's different is that you don't get the sticker. Because, yeah, the sticker costs some money to produce and it just wouldn't be worth it. So that's why we had to take it out of the $3 tier. And there's also, in addition to that, a higher tier, a $10 tier, which, by the way, I'm subscribed to. I changed my subscription. <laughs> I'm a Studying oh, Pixels Pro supporter. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, it doesn't get you anything extra. This is just that if you are in the situation that you have a little bit more of expendable income and you say, okay, I want to support Studying Pixels, then you can do so by subscribing and cho uh, choosing the $10 tier. If you're curious about this, then you can always find it at studyingpixels.com slash plus. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today we're going to do a little collection of reviews of games that we have recently played. That's why Richard joins us as well. Because Richard is just an infinite source of gaming wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> too kind. Much too kind. We've got the following games on the list. We've got Wulong Fallen Dynasty. We've got Forspoken, Fire Emblem Engage, Octopath Traveler 2, and the Dead Space Remake. And maybe, just maybe, depending on how much time we have, SpongeBob SquarePants Cosmic Shake. We'll just see how long we can, how long we can I groove. 
<laughs> I think that it's uh, the reason that everyone is listening today. <laughs> yeah, stick around for the real meat and potatoes of the episode yeah. at the very we, end. <laughs> we put it at the end so that everyone has to stick around to hear our impression of SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. We're really hyping it up now. <laughs> Wulong Fallen Dynasty is the first one on the list, and it's probably the one that's got the most attention recently. Yeah, it's. I just recently started playing it because uh, one thing we should mention is that we're in that period, this happened last year too, where like a million games are coming out all at once. So yeah. we figured that we would do this episode as kind of a, a mini review roundup because there's just so much that's out. We want to make sure that we're uh, keeping our chops sharpened with how many games that we're playing. So yes, I uh, am currently playing Wulong Fallen Dynasty because as I believe I've mentioned on the show, I am a massive fan of Koei Tecmo, uh, Team Ninja, and the Neo games in particular. And Wulong Fallen Dynasty is kind of uh, the Neo formula, but in Chinese myth and history. So I'm not as uh, up to snuff on all the all the uh, characters that are showing up and all of the mythology, but I'm having a lovely time. Is it as juicy <laughs> and difficult as the Neo games? I think that the best way to put it is that it feels like... So as I'm playing it, I'm thinking back on Neo, of course. And Neo came out in 2017, which was right before, two years before Sekiro, Shadows Die Twice came out. Neo 2 came out at the same time as, uh, or uh, shortly thereafter with, with Sekiro. And I remember there was a huge debate at the time about people who liked Sekiro versus people who liked Neo 2 because there was kind of the debate of which is the better samurai game. They're vastly different games, but they came out at the same time and they had a lot of similar elements. So Neo 2 wasn't really anything like Sekiro other than it was Japanese and uh, it had much different combat systems. It had a much different uh, loot system. It was way more complex, whereas Sekiro is very strict about what you're able to do and very precise and everything uh all of its mechanics wolong fallen dynasty feels way more like sekiro to me because it's more dependent so it, it has the elements of neo in that you can still get a lot of loot and equip your character in different ways and uh build them based on the five chinese taoist elements which is really interesting or onmyo in japan um, but it's so harsh and unforgiving <laughs> in its precision because similar to Sekiro that has that kind of breaking mechanic where you break down the stamina bar and then you get a, uh, kind of like a kill shot on, on one of the enemies. This game has a spirit and stamina system where your goal is not to chip away the health of the boss, but to get to one of those breaking points. So you accomplish that by precise dodging and parries and reflections. And I unabashedly admit that it took me like 10 hours to get past the first boss <laughs> because I've spent 500 hours in Neo 2. So going into this game with the Neo brain, I was thinking, oh, I can, I can just sort of grind and get to a point where I can beat this boss. It was only at hour eight that I realized, oh no, this is Sekiro. <laughs> I've got to, I've got to just be better at video games. 
<laughs> is it though a game that's structured similarly to the from software formula that the difficulty comes with its incredibly rewarding experiences absolutely yes to the point where when i finally beat the first boss i was so excited and it is so rewarding because i i don't i don't know if this is the case but the subsequent bosses i'm on i think chapter three or four right now the subsequent bosses are so much easier than the first boss and i don't know if it's because they're programmed to be easier or if the 10 hours i put into the first boss made me understand the mechanics and how the game works so it is I'm leaning more towards the latter because the the gameplay is so fluid and so satisfying when you get the dodges and parries and things that I'm convinced that they put the hardest boss at the beginning to kind of be a barrier for entry to how you actually play the game. Similarly to how, for example, the this long road works in Yharnam in, in, in Bloodborne. There's a long street that you need to fight your way through that basically is there to deter people who do not come with the required determination. Exactly right. <laughs> yep. It felt very much like a long and uh, arduous journey. <laughs> ar ar well, yes, but I was also going to say uh, a tutorial that I had no say in partaking in. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm really excited, and I think that... Uh, so it takes place in... It starts in 184 AD in China, and there's a rebellion going on, and then there's also... A, uh, a really cool villain called the Black Taoist, um, who is seemingly stealing people's chi and kind of using it against people. So in that sense, very similar to the Neo formula in that there is a kind of dark magician who's taking over uh, spirits and using them for ill-gotten gains. So, I mean, I have the utmost faith in Team Ninja and it's already won me over, I'm sure. Uh, I'm going to spend maybe not 400 hours in it, but I'm definitely going to complete it because it's a, it's a lot of fun. But it's not Team Ninja's Elden Ring now. <laughs> no, no. Although I will say, uh, I just got to an area, China is a very, uh, I'm not, I'm not breaking any new ground by saying China is a beautiful place. There is uh, I mean, just majestic mountain vistas and beautiful imagery all over the place. And this game it definitely, uh, graphically and scenery-wise, trumps Neo already. Neo's a beautiful game, and so is Neo too. But I uh, am taking a page out of your book, Stefan, and I'm just walking around looking at Excellent. these levels. It's beautiful. So really cool setting, and I love the designs for all of the sort of Chinese mythology. And I think, as I said, I may I may not be getting as much out of it just because I'm not as personally familiar with this uh, history, although I know enough about Taoism through my religious studies to see what they're doing and where they're going with it. Uh, but regardless, I think even if you have no knowledge of it, it's a beautiful game with a lot of really fun voice acting. And it's it's a little dissonant because I'm playing it, uh, the, your options are English and Japanese. And so I'm playing it in Japanese, which is strange because I'm getting to these characters and their, their names are, I, I just met someone named, um, I think, Hong Ching, 
but her Japanese name is very different. And I haven't, I didn't even pick up on it because I was trying to figure out, are we talking about the same person? So clearly there's a disconnect between the Japanese history of these characters and how they were written in Japanese history versus the Chinese history. <laughs> so it's just, uh, that's something that is a problem, not a problem. It's something to get used to when you're doing religious studies is, okay, who, uh, we're calling him Bodhidharma, but what is his name in Japanese and what is his name in Chinese? And does he have an Indian name too? Who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that is an interesting question, right? Whether it is a problem or the complications that arise when a, a Japanese developer basically tells a story about basically the mythology, uh, like a, a Chinese mythology. Do you think that there's that this is a complication? Because I do remember the debates revolving around uh, Ghost of Tsushima, where people were like arguing about whether an American developer can legitimately tell the chapter, historical chapter out of you know, uh, Japan's history? It's definitely an interesting question. And I think one that's more nuanced than that, because Ghost of Tsushima is pretty historically accurate, at least. I mean, it's a, it's a story about Jin Sakai and, and the kind of forming of the Shinobi and everything like that. But, uh, the Kamikaze, right. The Mongolian invasion of Japan during that time, that is a true story. That's real history. And uh, for the most part, it, it stays true to that. What's interesting about Japan taking on a Chinese story is that, first of all, there's a lot of overlap, like I say, because one has to understand that most of what Japan got in terms of religiosity came filtered from China, which often came filtered from India. So Taoism uh, started in China and came over to Japan uh, as onmyo, but it's relatively the same thing with just Japanese kind of flavor over it. So you kind of run into the issue, and I, I haven't seen it yet, although I just met some characters that I'm a little concerned about. <laughs> and I think that uh, you have to think like, okay, is this going to be a Japanese retelling of a Chinese story where they are subsuming the history and the characters to fit Japanese narratives? Or are they telling a straightforward Chinese story? Because it's really difficult to parse those, especially when we go that far back in, in history, because there's uh, far less points of divergence between Japanese and Chinese kind of mythologization of their own histories. So it's really interesting. I don't, I don't know if that'll continue, but that's what I'm looking at. And I'll have more to report in probably a follow-up if, uh, you know, I just talked a lot in the Yakuza episode about Japanese nationalism. You did. Stay tuned. <laughs> I love that episode. I listened to it on my way back while traveling uh, back to Germany from Austria. It was very entertaining. I learned a lot about Japanese history, as I always do. It's a little, it's uh, fraught is the word I would use sometimes. So, <laughs> so stay tuned. Well, thank you very much for your impressions of Wulong Fallen Dynasty. Now, uh, Another title, another big one that came out, and I think from what I've observed from my just faint glimpses that I take at online discourse, it seems like it has really disappointed many people, and that would be Forspoken. Yes, um, I do apologize. I kind of zoned out there. I thought I was just listening to the show, and now I'm up, so <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. Uh. <laughs> well, if if I may jump you off, uh, give you a jumping off sure. point, Richard, uh, is it as bad as the internet makes it out to be? 
Okay, I want to tell a tale. I want to tell my, my story Ooh. that I think will set the stage. I think this okay. will do better than me even explaining the game. So I bought it as, I don't want to say as a joke, because that's not quite true. But uh, <laughs> I knew it was out, and I was really curious about it. And I saw 6 out of 10 was like the general rating for it. And I thought, that could really mean anything. Um, but I was wrong because that doesn't mean that because IGN is pretty, even bad games, no, no offense IGN, but they're usually pretty high even with those ratings. They're like, this game didn't work. That's 7 out of 10. So I should have used that as as a jumping off point. But I played it for about 40 minutes, downloaded it, played it about 40 minutes, put it down. I took a shower because <laughs> I needed I needed a break. And while I was in the shower, I was compl- like thinking about how to return games on PlayStation 5. <laughs> I was not curious a great, if you could. <laughs> not a great way to start. Not a great way to start. And and the thing about it is I'm not going to be as articulate as, as Dan was with the history of of like China or Japan, but um last time I was here, I was talking about the Callisto protocol. Yes. And I, I was a little critical of it, but I think that's because it did disappoint me. I, I expected so much and it just, I had a lot of criticisms, but I genuinely liked it. I thought it was a, a good game. It was a lot of fun. I'm excited to see what comes next. With this, I don't have as much, there's not so much separation between what I wanted and what I got. I don't have as much disappointment because it didn't really give me anything I wanted. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't like these peaks and valleys. And I imagine you went in with lower expectations than you did Callisto Protocol, too, Oh, right? oh, <laughs> you don't know the half of it, my friend. Um... <laughs> I saw the trailer and I, I thought I shouldn't buy this, and then I did anyway because that's just you know when when you love the craft of video games, sometimes you have to put your ego aside and just dive in. Um, but it, it something that disappointed me a lot was it's it was Square Enix, so they published it. They didn't make it, but it was um, I believe it's Luminous Productions made it, mm. and it was kind of staged as this huge AAA jump into you know, the PS5, and it it does look like a really good tech demo. You remember when tech demos would come out and you'd be like, I want to play that game, and then it just wouldn't ever materialize? Oh, yeah. Um, but right away, it just started dropping dropping the ball. Uh, the I, I can't talk too much about the plot without just spoiling it, mm. uh, but it's a very fish out of water, that kind of trope. I'm in a, a magic fantasy world, and it just sort of, like, hits hits all those major tropes that you would expect. I think... You two are, are experienced with games. I think you could probably figure out the entire plot in like the first hour. You'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, I get it. And then it never surprises you at any point. Um, even things like the character models were very like Assassin's Creed on the Xbox 360. Like that was kind of the vibe I got right away. Um, it was, I don't know. I, again, this isn't very articulate. So I'll stop and let you guys uh, ask any follow-ups if you have it. Um uh, first of all, the Assassin's Creed uh, character models gives me an exact frame of reference for sure. <laughs> what this game looks like. <laughs> the thing that I heard the most, so as you said, it's it's this character who uh, enters like a fantasy world in in anime terms. It's like an isekai, right? Where it's like, all right, you're taken from your world and you're put into a fantasy magical world. And she has to navigate that. And the biggest things that I've heard as points of criticism, because it's not a bad story. I mean, those are successful all the time is that one it's written, uh, really annoyingly in the sense that (laughs) 
they kind of are very meta about everything and they call things out and there's a lot of, well, that just happened kind of dialogue. Yeah. And um, the other thing I've heard is that the actual gameplay is pretty fun, but it's buried underneath all the other stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, um, one of my notes, which, <laughs> cause you know, I like to take notes when I'm, I'm playing games, especially if I'm going to talk about them later. Uh, I talked about, it seems like it's written by a 13 year old who just learned how to swear. You know, <laughs> so they kind of sneak it in in ways you don't, it doesn't really flow with the conversation and, mm. and a lot of just kind of over the top. It, it's, I don't know. So it is written poorly and like the chatter is not fun. It kind of ruins the experience. At one point, um, I very absentmindedly had headphones on when I started playing and I was listening to studying Pixels Plus, which you can support on Patreon. And <laughs> I was like, this game's not so bad. I thought this isn't, maybe I'm being dramatic. And I was just kind of grinding. I was doing like little side missions, little temples and stuff. And then I realized I wasn't listening to the game at all, which it kind of clicked that I was like, oh, I'm not even like experiencing this. I'm doing what I want to do. And then also this. Um, Got it. <laughs> so I, I don't know. It just, it just consistently disappointed me. And it loves to waste your time, which I was really frustrated with because it keeps like fading to black and like. Something that really frustrated me is you will get story notes, like story hits in tutorials. So you your character will say something, and you have no context for what they just said. But then a pop-up on your screen as a tutorial will say, this is what this means. And it's like, oh. you could have had a conversation with me. I don't know why I'm making up terminology. And then it's like, oh, hey, this is what you're doing. And yeah. So one of my least favorite tropes of any fantasy game ever, which is inundating you with fantasy jargon and expecting you to read an appendix to figure out what it means. <laughs> it, it's a little more like the character just makes up terms for stuff. And oh. then everyone's like, oh, this is the name of that forever now. <laughs> uh, so there, there's sort of a, also kind of a trope for, for big open world video games is it's post-apocalyptic. Like No one lives in the world. That they have like a mm. few cities, but like it's very barren. And your character calls it the break, um, which is the term. And that's what pops up. It's like, oh, Freya just said the break. And that means this. <laughs> it's like, why didn't I have reference to that? Like, why wasn't that important? Well, that's really interesting, I guess. Like the idea that the world is so post this event that no one has words for anything. <laughs> It's it takes an sure. outsider to name things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they they all call it the break right after that. So it is kind of funny to just be like, oh yeah, that's what this is, and it's like, well, you live here. This is your house, and <laughs> that's weird. Uh, and I don't know if you guys ever played um, Mass Effect Andromeda. Did that ever, yeah, come across? So sequel to the Mass Effect trilogy, um, kind of a, a spinoff, very open world based. It, it had very. Mass Effect Andromeda vibe where it has like this this camera sweep of the of the entire landscape, but there's nothing in it. So the game is traversing the map mm. as opposed to like experiencing it. I think Donkey said it best, uh, video game Donkey, where like short, compact maps give you like a fuller experience as opposed to like a huge map, which sounds great on paper, but you don't want to spend the whole game moving and going across it to have the next fun event. That's exactly the primary reason why I decided not to buy it at the time when the first reviews came out, because I really am not a fan of games that are very 
repetitive and that, as you said, waste my time. I don't like, I, I'm not the kind of person to run around an open world and do the same task over and over and over and over again. It just bores me and I start to get the feeling like I could do more meaningful things with my life at the moment. <laughs> and then I will usually, either I will drop it or I will, as you also do, just listen to a podcast on the side. When I heard that that was the case, even though the combat is supposed to be fun in itself, I decided not to not to play it. I did think the combat was okay. Um, a review I read very early on that I thought explained it perfectly, I wish I remember where I saw it, uh, it doesn't really get into its own until it's over. So by the time you feel like powerful and you have all the, the skills you would need or you want, you're, you're done. And I think that does happen a lot with like, adventure games where you're like, oh, I finally feel overpowered and now I'm done. And I, I guess I can understand, I can forgive that. But it didn't, it just didn't engage in a lot of ways. A lot of the mechanics didn't even like, like you would get like a wall of spells, but you would just be trying to get through the game so you wouldn't experiment. There, mm. there was a point where I was doing every single dungeon and then I was just like, I'm not having any fun. I want to finish the game. So I would just sprint to the marker on the map and I never felt underpowered. I never felt like I was bad. I just kept doing it. And this is kind of a minor thing. I kept having... Like crashes, the game kept crashing, specifically at this one boss that was like hard. <laughs> and oh, in no. some games, you'll fight a boss and you'll be like, that was easy. And then you'll find a boss in the world and it's like, why is this a one hit? I don't understand why that happened. So they'll just like get you once and you're like, okay, I, I guess I just died. And it was after that boss, I kept, I had to, I played it seven times, I think, before it kept, kept crashing and crashing. And, and basically, I'll never forgive you guys for making me play the Forspoken game. Uh, <laughs> we didn't do this. <laughs> well, you implied it that someone had to. This. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> a um, sacrificial lamb. Yeah. It is a shame, though, because I, the thing is that when the trailers came out, when the game was announced, I knew that when I saw it for the first time, I thought this could be very promising. It's a technically a really interesting idea to take like this uh, New York uh, young lady out of the world and basically throw her into a fantasy world and be kind of a little bit opposed to all of the things and to be kind of alien in that world. Uh, I find it quite a shame that they uh, stumbled over their own feet so much by making the world so huge, by cluttering it with writing that is just not sufficiently charming and not sufficiently witty. I also, I find it really frustrating when games that have kind of a uh, political controversy around them turn out to be just poorly constructed. Because then a lot of times the argument uh, comes out that, well, see, we knew it was going to be bad. And it's like, well, it could have been good. You know, it could have been, yeah, absolutely. it could have been better than you were expecting. And I think that it gets lumped in with, you know, obviously the, the dialogue is, uh, I mean, it's not my cup of tea, I would say, <laughs> from what I've heard. Uh, yeah. But if the game was really well put together and intriguing and the story was interesting and you know it was kind of breaking new ground i think i'd probably forgive that and see it as almost a more of an aspect and less as a less of a um a defect of the sure <laughs> and and i've been very negative um and i think it's because i kept making excuses right i think that mm. was my problem i kept saying oh well this is still the beginning and so we're just building up to it it's like oh well the writing isn't very good, but like the acting isn't so bad. And then I'm like, well, the acting is bad, but that's just because I'm sure there was some voice actor director who was in charge. And it just became this like 
layer upon layer upon layer of, of justifying this like mediocre experience. And I know I'm, I'm criticizing the gameplay a lot more. That's that's where I like to hyperfixate. Um, and the plot is just there's just nothing like like Stefan said. You're a New York girl who went to a fantasy world, and you're the chosen one and the only one who can fix anything. And it's and then you can you can come up with it from there. Like I think if you've played a lot of games, you can kind of figure it out. And it's just uh, it's just a shame. And it is also a shame because I like bad games. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the thing I enjoy. Like Sonic 06 is my jam, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it was just. It wasn't like bad enough. It's like a movie that wasn't bad enough to be fun. I guess maybe that maybe that's a better way. Just kind of bland and yeah. uh, and annoying, not like terribly bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much for your impressions of Forspoken. I'll definitely stay away from that video. Game. <laughs> yeah, that makes two of us. Sure. <laughs> I've actually it's kind of it's a mixed bag of reviews today because um, I've also I've got mixed impressions of Fire Emblem Engage that I would like to to bring on the show. So Fire Emblem Engage is the successor to Fire Emblem Three Houses, which came out in 2019. It's one of the biggest games on the Nintendo Switch. It is certainly the biggest game in the Fire Emblem series, which has always combined tactical combat, which is a little bit like, it's a little bit like playing chess in a very fancy form. Um, and on the other hand, a life simulation where you get to know the characters, they have relationships and all these kind of things. You have all kinds of side activities. You go fishing, you make some food, whatever, right? Uh, and the interesting thing about Fire Emblem Engage is that they could have easily built directly upon Fire Emblem Three Houses, which was so successful and so beloved like no other entry in the series before. But instead of going a step forward, they went a huge step sideways. Mm. which is something that caught me a little bit by surprise. I would have expected that they go forward and that they basically make a three houses, but bigger. Instead, they took a sidestep because Fire Emblem Engage abandons, not abandons, but it, it pulls back lots of things that Three Houses has established, especially in the domain of the social simulation, the life simulation and the relationships. And it doubles down and expands upon the combat. It's actually really combat-oriented. Just as a brief introduction to the story, it's a very standard default JRPG story. You play the, the, the divine dragon, which can be a female or a male character. It's basically up to you, however you want to choose your character. Shinryu-sama, the divine dragon, um, who wakes up after a thousand years of slumbering because the evil fell dragon has been awoken. And of course, it's now your job to save the world. And in order to do that, what you have to do is you have to obtain 12 of the engage rings, the fire emblem engage rings, the emblem rings is what they're called. Uh, this is the central mechanic. Um, in addition to all of the things that are already available in three houses, such as fighting with swords and spears and axes and magic and bows and all the standard repertoire, you now have kind of a superpower feature, which are these rings. If you have, if you put a ring, an engage ring on a character, they can summon a character from an older Fire Emblem game, from one of the older games, oh. from the series' history. That's cool. So, yeah. like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm only familiar with Fire Emblem through Smash, so, like, Ike and those kinds of people. <laughs> Marusu, for example. Marth. Yeah. Marth and, and Sigurd 
and uh, like these Fire Emblem heroes. The good thing about it is you do not have to have played these games. You, you do not have to know these characters beforehand in order to enjoy it. Like they introduce these characters briefly, these new these emblem characters, and they're also not the main team in itself. They are like uh, ghosts, you could say, spirits that are following you around. Like you can assign one ring to each uh, team member. And depending on the skills and on the equipment, um, on the specialties that this emblem has, it will amplify the character's skills and give you some kind of superpower. For example, and this is great, this is really, it is a game changer for the combat because it means that you can, for example, have a mage who can once, when summoning their, when engaging with their spirit, uh, warp herself across the map to a different location and launch some kind of super strong attack, which is excellent if you're in a pickle or if your party is split up on the map and weaker characters are getting attacked by an overwhelming force and you can just basically flip the table around. That's really amazing. It's a great feeling. That's really fun. I think, so is it the case that, because I remember when Three Houses came out, that was kind of like, uh, it was a big step in the direction of getting a more global audience to Fire Emblem because prior to prior to that there were some DS games and 3DS games that were available but I don't think it was it was still a pretty niche game and I feel like Three Houses opened it up really broadly do you get the sense that because of uh Three Houses success the developers decided let's make this a little more broad and try to keep that appeal going and that's why they took that sidestep or is it more specific? My speculation as to why would be that they are secretly working on a, a, a new mainline Fire Emblem game. And that this one is kind of the one where, you know, where they say, um, instead of developing this gigantic all new thing, why don't we throw in all of the ideas that we may have had for the combat and that didn't make it into three <laughs> houses or things where we only later figured out, hey, wouldn't this and that be fun? And let's try all of these new things out in Fire Emblem Engage. A very daring okay. step, I have to say. Because I must say that, I mean, Fire Emblem Engage, for me, is the weaker game in comparison to three houses. It's mm. most clearly the weaker game. Not that it's not fun in itself, but um, it is just very it's it's a kind of different flavor to three mm -hmm. houses you know it's like when you have a a favorite drink and you really enjoy it and then they change like the recipe and suddenly <laughs> even though it's not in itself bad it's just a little bit like hmm okay for example these um the conversations that we have with the characters in the game with your with your party members in between uh, they are a lot more like uh, superficial, you could say. You don't engage with the characters on such a deep level anymore. And part of the reason is also that the roster of characters is huge. It is tremendously huge. I don't know why, <laughs> but, but they keep introducing new characters and always like, you know, two or three new characters at the same time. And I'm just like... I don't even know. I'm a, the list for my party members is so long. I can barely remember who is who now anymore. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that's, that is probably because, you know, in three houses, 
the characters are split up in three houses, three houses. of course. <laughs> and you only play... <laughs> you, you have like, I don't know what, like 10 or maybe 12 characters in your default roster and then you can add a couple of new ones if you want to. Whereas in Fire Emblem Engage, they throw all of the characters directly into your party. It's a little harder to get invested when... It's like our we always bring this up in new games that we play where we don't we we find ourselves not enjoying when there's a million choices or there's a million like meta mechanics and I think that in a game like Fire Emblem which I understand is a a big draw of it is the combat but a really big draw of it of course is all of the characters because they're so they're so famous and they're so beloved that when you when you end up with like a you know, a cast of thousands, you're kind of thinking, all right, I don't know who I want to get attached to. <laughs> yeah. So I also, I wonder whether it's even possible to develop all of these relationships in the course of one single playthrough. Um, I do find though that the characters, if you inspect them more closely, then they are really charming in themselves. There's, for example, mm. there's uh, Ivy, the uh, kind of, uh, you could say, a femme fatale trope. You can imagine her a little bit like a Bayonetta character who rides on a dragon and is amazing at casting spells. And she was originally, she was on the enemy's side and then due to some circumstances, which I obviously will not spoil, eventually decides to join you and help out. And that's a really interesting tension there. Or there's Anna, uh, like a, she's an axe fighter, I think. And uh, she is, uh, I think she's a kid. But she hates being treated as a kid because she wants to be a merchant. And so she reminds everyone that they shall call her like Anna-san instead of just Anna <laughs> uh, to address her more formally. Uh, and there, so there are interesting characters um, that I find very well worth engaging with. However, the world in which you do that is, um, you know, it works, it works similarly to Three Houses because you've got this hub world in which you can walk around and engage with characters and have side activities. This time, it's the Somniel, or Soraneru in the Japanese version, uh, where you basically have like a sprawling uh, hub. And you can talk to characters, but most of the time it doesn't do anything. You can give them gifts, but it's not like in Three Houses where you have to pay particular attention who you give what to, because most of the things that I've found so far, every character likes them equally. Mm. And you know what the most common item is that I just received? It's horse manure. <laughs> And they'll I just, like it. <laughs> I just I just get horse manure constantly. And you, you can't give it to characters. Then they make like a, a funny remark. And that's it. And I've got like eight. I've got like, I'm walking around with so much horse poop. And I, I'm like, why, is, why does the game do that to me, you know? Modern gaming problems, right? Modern, All this yeah, horse poop, nowhere to put it. Uh, well, another modern gaming problem is really, I must say, the Switch. Unfortunately, I say it every time I review a game and I play it on the Switch, that console is just, uh, it's, it's on its last legs, I feel. Because if you, in the, in, the, in the domain of the Somnial, you have to go through several doors sometimes to go, for example, to a ring chamber where you can polish the rings and uh, merge them into stronger rings and such things. If you go through that door, you can factor in at least a one-minute-long loading screen just for that one thing that's basically like a shop that you go to and then you do some adjustments and then you go back out and then you have to again wait another minute that i just think oh god why it just <laughs> it strikes me as and i know you say this every time you play a switch game but it's true at this point like i think that we've reached critical mass with the ambitions are not uh 
they're not in line with the hardware anymore because I would love, I would love to see, I trust that Nintendo for the most part, you know, if they want to put out a massive world, uh, a, ma a game with a massive world, it's not going to be like for spoken, for example, where it's just like totally empty. Like I do, I, I trust that it's going to be interesting to explore. Like the Xenoblade games are like that. Um, obviously Super Mario Odyssey, Breath of the Wild, but it does kind of shine a really big spotlight on, okay, it's been almost seven years. We need an upgrade here if you want to keep making bigger and better games. Definitely. Yeah. And I also want to, just as a final thoughts on it, I don't want to deter anyone from playing Fire Emblem Engage because it's a really <laughs> great game. It's really mm -hmm. fun. The the Even though the entire social simulation has been... Uh, has been greatly reduced in comparison to Three Houses. It is still fun. And I think it's especially a game for those people that played Three Houses and they think, hmm, uh, I would love to really engage more with this fantastic combat system. Because this is really, uh, this is tactical RPG gold standard. Like, mm. it's absolutely fantastic, enthralling. It's this kind of feeling where you think, ah, I'll just, I'll just do one more turn. You know, I'll just... Uh, I'll just do one more one more battle and I'll see how I fare. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say I would definitely recommend it for everyone who uh, remotely enjoys Fire Emblem with the condition of not expecting like something that is uh, a, a development further along the direction of Three Houses, but something that exists maybe in parallel to it. I think I know your answer already, but I'm going to ask anyway. If... So if, if you're like me, a Fire Emblem novice who's never played Fire Emblem games, would you recommend starting with Three Houses or with Engage? Three Houses, for sure. Okay. Yeah. That's what three I houses is the <laughs> Three Houses is a much more well-rounded experience overall, whereas Engage, I would say, if afterwards you say, I'm still hungry for more, I would still like to uh, experiment more with the combat. And they're really cool new combat twists that kind of change your thinking in combat. Uh, then I would say engage afterwards. Okay, shall we take a brief break before we move on with... What do we have on the list still? I need to get an overview. Octopath Traveler 2. Ooh. Dead Space Remake. Wow. Possibly SpongeBob. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see you in a minute. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And we are back to talk about probably the game in this episode that I'm the most curious for, and that is Octopath Traveler 2. Yes, and it's a game that I... I know you will love Stefan because yeah. I I was I think and still am in love with it. Mm. I had such a beautiful time with Octopath Traveler 2. I was a late adopter to Octopath Traveler. I had only played it I think a, it was a couple years after it had come out, but I was enamored with it as I think we both were. Richard, I don't know, have you ever played Octopath Traveler? No, I'm I'm uh... Don't kick me off the show, but I'm not super into turn-based RPGs. So this is, That's this fine. is I'm, That's... So I'm very interested to see, like, you're saying that you love it. I want to hear, I want to hear it all. Yeah, it, it's, so it's definitely, it's a throwback to a simpler time with uh, RPGs in particular. So as you mentioned, Richard, it's turn-based. Um, it has a 16-bit aesthetic. It's a Square Enix uh, published game. And it is, uh, it's magical. And I think that, what I really loved about Octopath Traveler 2 is something that I've seen a lot of reviews talk about, which is it's more Octopath Traveler, which is good. <laughs> but I would make the argument that it's an improvement on the first game in a lot of really nice ways, most of which being, I would say, just kind of um, kind of quality of life polishes that uh, make the game stand out from its predecessor in terms of it being sort of they learned from things that worked things that maybe didn't work so well and they just took it in a great direction but first and foremost i'm not going to get into any spoilers but i will say that it's the most engaging and optimistic story that i've played in an rpg since dragon quest 11 which we recently talked about which i know we have a soft spot for and what i mean by that is it's a very the overarching plot outside of the eight travelers' stories is very, very simple. Without spoiling anything, it's light versus dark, right? But it's so well-constructed between the eight travelers' stories that all converge on one another in a really beautiful way that it's impossible not to be engaged with it, especially at the end of it. Um, the music is incredible. I think that the graphic reduction to make it like a 16-bit aesthetic shows that uh, they say, okay, let's put a lot of work into the voice acting and into the music. It's uh, beautiful. I don't often do this, but like I sent Stefan several tunes as I was playing it just because they were in my head. Um, and it's so uh, well put together and uplifting that you can't help but get excited when you hear certain songs because you know it's a particular story beat coming up 
and it's uh I've, I've used this term before. It's a kind of get up off your couch kind of game in a lot of moments where there's a lot of just uplifting, beautiful moments between these eight characters. Um, in particular, I want to shout out my favorite character because with Octopath, you get to choose who you start with and how you kind of build your party in the order of the eight people. And I didn't start with this character, but he won me over immediately and became my favorite character in either of these two games. So there's a merchant named Partitio, and he's in Japanese voiced by Kazuya Nakai, who the entire time I was listening to him, I was like, I know this guy's voice. And he voices a character named Mugen in Samurai Champloo, which is one of my favorite anime of all time, kind of a ronin samurai. And... I recognized him, and I was just sort of in love with this character. He's an optimistic merchant who his goal is to fight back that devil known as poverty. He grew up in kind of a social commune where his father uh, wanted to make a town for everybody so that everybody was a stakeholder in the town, and they all kind of reaped the benefits of their silver mine that they were working. So Partitio grew up in this world, he honed his merchant skills. He always tried to find work for people. And as the years go on, the silver mine loses its value. And so he eventually decides to step out into the world to pursue other means of making wealth so that he can make people happy. And without getting into what he does, he completely changes the course of the world just by virtue of believing in people and uh, thinking the best of everybody. Even his, uh, his, his villain, as part of his story, uh, is not immune to this way of thinking for Partitio. And so all of his little asides with the other eight characters, all of his story beats, it, it's just one of these characters, and I would say it's my favorite, uh, but... It's so indicative of how this story is so well-written and how these characters draw you in immediately and how you want to see them interact with each other and succeed in their, in, their own, uh, each their own um, storylines. I love that Octopath Traveler has this incredible skill of zooming in very close onto people's lives and their stories. Like, of course, it's all a big conflict about light versus dark as you said that was already the case in the first game as well but mm. they do uh, tell very intricate and detailed stories from people's daily life that mm. i think combines the uh, the storytelling skills of what you would more find in, a, in the literary genre and uh, on the other hand the charm the aesthetic and maybe even auditory charm of a puppet theater and yeah. I think bringing both of these together is just uh, so engaging that I can't wait to start playing Octopath Traveler 2. You're right, Stefan. It's, it's like a theatrical quality that Octopath has, mm. where uh, this is the second time we've brought up Brecht in as many episodes. But I think the, the graphical limitations show just how much care was put into the other aspects of it. If you're thinking of like using an RPG uh, trope, if you're building a, a story like you're building a character, you have 
points that you can put into graphics, into storytelling, into music, characters, right? So this one, Octopath Traveler 2 kind of goes low on the graphics to give that sort of Super Nintendo era charm and just pumps all the other points into all of the different categories. (laughs) And even the gameplay, the fighting. So I definitely understand, Richard, like where you're coming from with turn-based games, because I know it's not everyone's uh, forte. But I will say that uh, this was in Octopath Traveler 1, too. The idea of the boost system, where you can boost your character and give them basically more turns uh, in one turn, uh, either you can kind of give them multiple attacks or multiple item usages, or you can just boost the effectiveness of one particular attack. It makes it more dynamic in a way that other turn-based RPGs don't do, like Dragon Quest XI, for example. I think it makes you strategize a lot more, especially because the bosses are difficult. They are old-school, classic, difficult bosses in Octopath, and you have to really think about how you're going to do it. You got to think about how you put your party together, who you're going to equip certain sub-jobs to so that they get different stat boosts and different abilities and different uh, latent skills that are just passive abilities. It's it's really uh, a lot of preparation, but not in the sense of being overwhelming because there's only eight characters and there's only so many jobs. I think there's maybe 10 of them. No, I'm sorry, there's 12 of them. And it doesn't give you a whole lot of customization, but just enough so that you recognize what works and what doesn't. And uh, one of the things that I really appreciated about it is that it gives you a, a game speed modifier when you're fighting. So if you're grinding, which you do have to do at certain points, you can speed through it and it's not a huge chore. Well, that is good and nice to hear, but still, I must say, it seems to carry over these two, I would say, rather more annoying aspects from the first game, which is grinding and random combat encounters. Because these things are actually, as much as charming as they are in their retro nostalgic way, they can get quite annoying, especially when you just when you want to get to a dungeon or you want to uh, open a treasure chest or something and you walk towards it and then it's just like random battle. It's like, oh, again? Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say that I appreciate the game speed uh, modifier. And then there's also, um, there's more items in this game, more equipable accessories that change the uh, encounter rates. So if you want to uh, get more encounters and you want to equip, um, or you want to fight more rare monsters, the Kets, that give you more experience, there are items that you can get that will increase the chances so that the grind doesn't take as long. There's also abilities and equipment that you can use to completely turn off random encounters. Oh, really? So, yeah. So oh, I like that. It takes a while to, you got to find them, but it is worth it when you do. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that uh, I'm nothing if not sentimental, especially with JRPGs, as we know from our show. But there is a moment that uh, I'm not going to spoil because I I don't want to take this moment away from it from anybody. But I so I played it in Japanese, and all I'll say is there's a character named Oswald who's the scholar. He's the mage type character, 
And his story is so heartbreaking. There's a moment where I had to put my controller down and I legitimately wept for a moment because of the word in Japanese, tadaima, which means I'm home or I'm back. And oh this God, moment, Dan, I have to cry already. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> Why it's are you doing so, this to me? <laughs> it, is so ch- it is so chilling and so well-written and so perfectly executed that I had to like take a walk to appreciate it. So Octopath Traveler 2 gets full rating from me. I can't wait for Stefan. I know you'll play it, Richard. Try it out. You might like it. <laughs> well, well, that's what that was. What I was going to ask you, as far as mm. getting into sort of turn-based RPGs, uh, everyone talks about Octopath. It, it's apparently, well, I don't mean to say apparently, but I hear a lot of wonderful things about it. Mm. Would you say it's a good one to get your feet wet, or is there something a little more approachable on the market? I think this is the most approachable because it's not. Um, it's it's not complicated and it's not but it's also not so simple that it's boring. Okay. I think that you it it allows you to customize things. And also it's so it's so segmented in how the story works because basically the way that the the Octopath formula works is that each character has about 4 to 5 chapters that focuses on their story. And so let's say you get really invested in the character that you start out as, who the game Dane's your protagonist, right? You can basically, if you want to, go through and complete their story. It gets progressively harder, but you can explore the world and level up and get equipment and armor and stuff that makes it so that it's doable. But it also incentivizes that you go and you learn of the other people's stories so that you can get them and they get more abilities to make your story, the story that you're looking forward to easier. So I think that the true strength of it is that uh, unlike Octopath Traveler 1, where there was like one or two stories that I kind of wasn't interested in, all of these are interesting. They're all captivating. It really pushes you to kind of um, learn more about the world and about the characters. So if you're looking for a turn-based RPG to get invested in, I think that the story is so strong that even if you're not completely bought into the the combat right away, you'll get there because you want to see where these people go. I also like that Octopath Traveler is always like a pretty self-contained thing. Like it's, it, you don't have to have extensive knowledge of some kind of series and some kind of vast law that happens. The world is very approachable and understandable. And these, these, uh, these eight different stories and eight different characters, um, I found that really appealing in the first game already is that the game doesn't expect of you that you play through it several times. You can do that if you want to, but actually, no matter which character you choose, you can then still see the stories of all the other characters as well. Then you basically play them for a short section, and then they join your party, and then basically you're all together again. Yeah. And uh, that's why I, what I really liked. It always felt like you're always moving forward at a steady pace. It does. And I think the one... The one thing that I would call a weakness, almost as a double-edged sword, because I think it's actually both a weakness, it's a weakness at first, but a strength later, is that um, you, you don't get interaction with the characters apart from these little like asides where it'll, it'll prompt you uh, as you're walking through a town that there's like travel banter and characters in your party will kind of pop up on a stage and talk to one another and they're all really charming but outside of that 
you don't have characters commenting on the other character's story. So let's say I Partitio, for example, right? If I start with him and then I go into Agnia, the dancer, Partitio won't talk to Agnia during the cutscenes. It's just Agnia's story. So they are very separate, but then they come together after you've done all of them. And that's almost like a reward because you know all these characters individually that you want to see how they interact. So for example, the uh, Partitio and Oswald story, these two characters that I've mentioned, one being the uh, diehard optimist and another being a cold calculating uh, like downer, to be honest, them coming together to do something is so rewarding after you've seen both of their stories. So it, it it's like an investment kind of game, but I think that there's enough rewards along the way that you don't feel like you're waiting for the ball to drop. Is there any sort of connective tissue to the first one? Not to, not to just keep asking questions, but... No, please. Um, no, not really, apart from the world. Um, so there's the world, and then... Uh, so the, the map is similar. There's a lot of places that are the same. Like, you recognize that this is the same world, but you don't get, like... Oh, um, Olberic, the warrior from the first game, he was here and he did this. And that's why this happens. It's not, it's not, it's more like Final Fantasy in the sense that they're each contained stories. And it seems like, um, that said, there's certain things in this one that happen, particularly in Partitio's story, where, uh, Octopath Traveler 3 has the potential to look very different because of what happens there. So I think it's more like um, Avatar The Last Airbender, kind of, where it's like, here's the world that's just progressed 100 years, and these people have kind of nothing to do with the predecessors, really. Thank you so very much. It's definitely the game that I'm going to play next. Um, now, shall we finish it off with some Dead Space remake? Yes. Yeah. Richard, I... I'm so glad you're here for this. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. It's, uh... Did either of you play it? I know we chatted no. about it before. Only but. the first... No, wait, I, I haven't even played the first Dead Space. I only played Dead Space 2 and 3. And so, no, I have neither played the original nor the remake. Well, fun. I have great news for you. Uh, the remake is maybe the best place to start, yeah. uh, to be completely <laughs> honest. Um, um, I'm just trying... I'm just going... I'm sorry, one second here. Um, going through your notes. Going through... Yeah, it's not very much. It's just Dead, Sp Dead Space remake and then a question mark next to it. So... Um, <laughs> But but essentially, if you've never played it, it's fine. Let me fill you in. So essentially, you play as Isaac Clarke, who is a, an engineer, and they're going to the Ishimura um, in search of Isaac's girlfriend. I know that doesn't sound very interesting, especially when I stammered through, stammered through it, but uh, all hell breaks loose, essentially. So it's um, it's very casual. Not a lot of cutscenes, which even in like the intro, there's not a ton of that. Just very walking through, you get there, and then everything falls apart. And then that's kind of where the games diverge, like the original and, and the remake. There's a lot of very similar, um, like, aesthetics and stuff, but, like, cranked up to 11. Uh, I, the story is, is basically that. You get that, um, or excuse me, you get there, and then you move through the ship where there's cultists, and you're looking for your girlfriend, and then things might not be as they seem, which is uh, how every story goes, really. Um <laughs> But the first one came out in, I believe, 2008 or 2007. Like, it's pretty it's pretty old. And that was what I was really worried about with the remake is, like, it being completely accurate. Like, haha, now you can play this old game on your Sony PlayStation 5. And I, I was terrified of that because older games had things like quick time events and 
things that didn't really serve a purpose, but to like waste your time or to let the next area load. And there's really none of that. So they got rid of all like the, the video gaminess of it, which uh, sounds a little weird, but so you're not like doing a mini game to unlock a door or mm. you're not doing some like long section of, of crawling that you know is just loading on the next side. And um, there's an infamously complicated asteroid part where you have to aim a cannon and, and shoot these asteroids out of, the, out of the sky. And they just like got rid of it. They were like, yeah, we'll just do something else. Oh, really? Oh, that, it's, that's really cool. It's because beautiful. I, I really appreciate that because often enough, the lines between remake and remaster gets blurry yeah. because people mm-hmm. would just like upscale and put a little bit of touches upon here and there. But if they really go in and they actually change things and they reevaluate the game and see how it might work as a 2023 game, that's something that I really appreciate. Oh, absolutely. It's got a lot of, I guess, Resident Evil 2 remake energy. If, if, if you, mm. have either of you played that? Yes. Um, they, they completely revamp. The, the, it's, I mean, it's still a third-person shooter, so I don't want to say completely revamped it, um, but changed basically everything, like these huge areas that look familiar, some that look totally different. Um, there's story beats that weren't in, in the first game. There's this, like... Oh, really? S- yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, like, a side a side mission mechanic that th- there was, like, touches of in the first one, but now it's just do this side mission. And you're getting a lot of story told through, you know, projections of people, like holograms, like just notes lying around. And that really fills the world out in a way I felt the first one kind of lacked. The other one, of course, had the luxury of having two games that came after it. Um, and this one, it may still, but you feel like the world is really lived in in a way that that older game might not have prioritized. Mm. And everything, and it's terrifying. <laughs> there, there's this part in particular where a big part of this game is fuses. So you'll, you'll come to a fuse box and you have, you have two fuses, but there's three spots. So you have to kind of prioritize what you're doing. And there was a part where I had to turn off the lights and I knew I was doing it. So I was the one who turned off the lights to make an <laughs> elevator work. So I pulled it out and then it was dark. And I put it back in right away. And I was like, <laughs> I have to do this. Like, cause I had to power the door to the elevator and then the elevator. So I turned out my own lights <laughs> And then walked through the dark. And it's just that sort of engagement that in horror games makes all the difference. Because I, I love a big scary monster, don't get me wrong. But knowing that you're the one causing these these sorts of situations and pushing yourself forward, it really just, it's on a much different level. It's fun. I would hugely recommend this game. But I do know that sometimes you get a little spooked by stuff. Some stuff is scary. <laughs> so I don't know if, I, I adored it. Um, but I'm not a great point of reference well you're you're the horror guru on our in our universe here but i think that (laughs) i love what you just said where the simple difference of making you responsible for the lights being out and putting that choice in your hands of you can either stay here and not be scared or progress in the game (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's such a that's such a great thing and i'm i'm interested that so does it does it change the story or does it just add to it I don't think it changes. I didn't find any major alterations of it. Mm. Um, it did add an alternate ending oh, um, that okay. you can unlock. Um, that's interesting. I, I guess I didn't pay that much attention. It, it hits all the main story beats. Okay. So there isn't like any crazy twists to it. It might include a few more characters, but I don't think they served a purpose or really flushed anything out. They might have just been storytelling devices. 
does it seem like um the and you'll have to forgive me because I just watched Scream Six, so I've got oh. all this <laughs> I've got all this uh meta <laughs> commentary in my head. Does it seem like they're going for kind of a requel where it's like, all right, we're going to tell the story of Dead Space, but we're going to leave it open so that we could take sequels in different directions than the previous sequels went. That's interesting. Um, I think maybe it is maybe the only answer I have for you because I I don't think that's what they were shooting for, but I'm not saying that wasn't that's impossible because essentially you get to the same place and then you end at the same place, so it doesn't really okay. leave a ton of of wiggle room and and it's much more flushed out. Like don't get me wrong, and there's new areas and and not really new mechanics, but new like sort of experiences that. You know, even someone I played. I played that game last year, so it's not like the original Dead Space. It's not like it's not like something that's totally foreign to me, um, and that gave me a whole new experience. I would be really disappointed if they did this pretty close to the first one, and then for the second one, they were like, "Well, you're just doing whatever." Like that would really disappoint me. Mm. Um, if in a perfect world, they'll do two and then fix three. And then <laughs> life will move on, and we'll all I'll get a perfect trilogy. The, the universe will be back in balance. And, and I'll, I'll smile again, ever for the first time. I think it's a smart decision, though, that they made because um, we've seen the release of Callisto Protocol, and we discussed it on the show, and we were very like, you know, warm and cold on it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think it's really it's it's interesting to see that they come around and they release the Dead Space remake, which is a game that's what how old now it's uh you said 15 years 2007 or something something like that uh and they release it as a remake with basically optimizations but it's it's still like a game that came out well many years ago and it trumps uh the (laughs) protocol (laughs) it it doesn't feel like a remake which i i absolutely adored there was it didn't feel like it was I mean, I knew it was, obviously, and I recognized areas, but it didn't have any sort of, like, wow, they really changed it. It was like, this is just a game that I'm, well, I'm playing, and I love that. That was. I think I think you, you put it best when you made the comparison to the RE2 remake, because it sounds like that game walked. I, I say walked. It was a great game. That game ran <laughs> so this game could uh, slice up <laughs> necromorphs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I remember when... The, the Callisto Protocol came out. Like before I had played it, I thought to myself, it would really suck to have to release a remake of the game this game is like a spiritual successor to this year. And then I played this game and I was like, man, it would sure suck to release a spiritual successor to this game because <laughs> it's so well pol it's so polished and it's so interesting. And um if you do check it out, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it if if it is something that you think feels new and like doesn't feel like a remake, or if you do play it and you think, oh yeah, this is this is on the Xbox 360 or something. Like that that would be a really interesting insight. I have to play Dead Space Remake because I need to com- complete the trilogy. Uh, oh, because okay. I, I've, I've, played, I've played the second one and the third one already. And I do know that, I mean, I've, I have great affection for Dead Space 2. I think it's also widely regarded to be either the best or the second best one. <laughs> like it's... Uh, it's definitely somewhere in yeah. somewhere in there. It's it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more action oriented. I understand, but mm. uh, I have never played the first one, even though I have lots of affection for the series. So uh, the Dead Space remake is probably the way to go. Yeah. And and I would say, just for point of reference, um, I would say Dead Space One is like Alien. If if you've ever seen Ridley Scott's Alien, um, very isolated, very close quarters, kind of moving through this. 
And I'd say the second one's kind of like Aliens, uh, which by James Cameron. So it's it's kind of the same thing, but very it's it's in like enlarged and it's more dramatic and it's it's more action packed. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a very different kind of experience. I I think that's the perfect uh, analog <laughs> to Death Space One and Two is Alien <laughs> and Aliens. Well, I'm psyched because that's that's been on my list and uh, Dead Space is weirdly near and dear to our hearts on studying pixels because we did our uh, plus episode on the rise and fall of visceral games, the brain chat or the, <laughs> the brain father of, <laughs> of the dead space games. And, yeah. uh, I I'm really excited, especially after, as Stefan said, we were a little warm and cold on Callisto protocol. So it sounds like it's worth, worth the time. So, thank you so very much for your impressions of dead space. Um, SpongeBob. <laughs> we have to we have to Ooh, we teased I could I could do real quick. I'll do it real really quick. Okay. What uh, one sentence review of SpongeBob one Square sentence Pants. review. Okay. It was it, it might be a run on sentence. Uh, <laughs> it was done by the same studio and publisher who made uh the Battle for Bikini Bottom remaster, but it also feels like they got a bunch of assets and didn't understand the source material. Maybe uh. maybe that's as articulate as I need to get with it. Um, <laughs> we should do this more often, like a one sentence review of a video game. <laughs> yeah, that's that very intriguing be, to me. Maybe at the end of your year, you could just every game that came out this year, one sentence on it. Yeah, regardless a, of whether we played it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our quick fire reviews. Uh, Mario is their next one. <laughs> well, thank you so very much for listening and thank you Richard for coming by for this episode if you wish to not Richard but you are there <laughs> although Richard you as well if you've got any thoughts or questions <laughs> feel free <laughs> yeah I'll let you know I'll let you know <laughs> feel free to submit them on studyingpixels.com slash contact you can also Richard if you want to join our discord server <laughs> <laughs> oh tell me more thank you <laughs> and we are going to be back next week with an interview about about motion capturing. That's going to be an interesting one. I'm really looking forward to that and I hope you are as well. See you then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.